I don't think they're that into money, which is what's so weird about the two of them. They're after power. Hold on a minute. I talk about power a lot on this show. But this is a love story. A story of boy meets girl. Girl converts to boy's religion. Boy's dad is released from federal prison. Girl's dad uses their wedding to advertise his properties. Boy takes control of a newspaper. Girl's dad takes control of the United States. Boy texts with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Girl violates the Hatch Act. Boy gets put in charge of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, a podcast from Now This. Let's dig a bit more into that boy. He's been called the Shadow Chief of Staff at the White House. And really, his only qualification is being the president's son-in-law. So, who is Jared Kushner? Let's begin in the Soviet Union, immediately after World War II, with the story of a young Jew, Joseph Berkowitz. Joseph and his wife Ray are refugees, much of their family killed by the Nazis. And the post-war USSR isn't a great place to be Jewish. Ray and her father and family want to immigrate to the United States, but bringing Joseph along would be tough. It was nearly impossible to secure immigration papers for men who weren't traveling as sons or fathers of others traveling. They found a way. Joseph took his wife's last name, Kushner. This was all uncovered by journalist Andrea Bernstein. It's in her great new book, American Oligarchs. Jared Kushner's grandfather was named Yussel Berkowitz. His grandmother was named Ray Kushner. And I wondered, how is it that the family took on his mother's name? That is not a typical thing among Jewish families or any families. So I began to look for explanations. And one of the explanations came in some testimony that his grandmother, Ray Kushner, had given, where she's asked what is your name? And she said, my name is Ray Kushner. And then she's asked, what was your maiden name? And she said, Ray Kushner. And the interviewer says, your married name and your maiden name are the same? And she says, yes, we were relatives. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. So I began investigating. I began asking questions and piecing it together from the Kushner family history But the real breakthrough was that I obtained a case file from the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which had helped the Kushner family immigrate. And there were 23 pages of notes about the interactions between aid workers, which began in Italy, continued through their arrival in New York. And they describe this ruse. I mean, they don't know it's a ruse, but they describe how Joe Kushner is presenting himself as his father-in-law's son, and he's presenting his wife as the in-law and his wife's sister as his sister. And you can see very clearly how he is developing this tale, which they felt like they had to do to be able to immigrate to the United States. So that's what they do to get into this country. And they arrive here with $2 to their name. But it's a period of incredibly rapid growth in the United States. It would work out well for Joseph, who was chasing the American dream, landing in America with nothing to your name and building an empire. It's what we're led to believe is the American way, that anyone can succeed with nothing but some hard work and ingenuity, all on their own. But like many successful Americans, 
Joseph's story wasn't all bootstrap pulling. There are all of these GIs returning from the war wanting housing. There is all of this federal money fueling suburban home construction, fueling suburban highways, fueling home mortgages. And it's an incredibly great time to be a builder, which is what Jared Kushner's grandfather does. So his business is fueled aloft by all of this government assistance. He becomes a a millionaire many times over. His four children, Esther, Linda, Murray, and Charles, work for his company and split ownership of the New Jersey empire when Joseph passes away. Charles has a son of his own, Jared. Journalist Vanessa Gregoriadis has firsthand experience of the private school gossip girl Manhattan world that Ivanka Trump came from. Her podcast on Ivanka, Tabloid, is essential listening. But what does she know about Jared and the Kushners? Um, He, you know, was the golden boy. From the time that he was little, he was the one that was supposed to, like, inherit the mantle of Kushner companies. And his parents, very unlike Ivanka's parents, who were super absent, right? They were just not around. She raised herself and the nannies raised her. Jared's parents um, really did raise him. They have a very, very close family. And I had many people say to me, you go to their house and they're the only people that, you know, we went to visit 15 people to interview them. And we went to Jared's parents' house and they were the only people who asked us what we wanted to eat Mm -hmm. and what we wanted to drink. And they were just so kind and so lovely. And everybody who meets them says they're the loveliest people ever. But the investigative reporting is that the father was absolutely vicious to his employees, to everybody else who worked for him. I mean, they live essentially in a community that's almost like a Clearwater kind of situation in New Jersey where Jared's family has put together, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, there's the synagogue and there's his his uh, corporations and homes and community centers and it's all kind of funded by his family and everybody is um, – You know, on the payroll, Charles Kushner, Jared Kushner's father, has his own way of sort of um, turning money into power. And he cultivates political relationships and he makes huge uh, campaign contributions, some of them which are so big and so inappropriate that he ultimately goes to prison for that. Charles donates to Democratic politicians across New Jersey. And young Jared even gets in on the action. At 11 years old, he donates the legal maximum, $1,000, to the Senate campaigns of Frank Lautenberg and Robert Abrams. Bill Clinton met with the Kushners, and at a fundraiser in 2000, Jared got on stage to introduce climate change documentarian Al Gore. Jared was 16. However, politicians weren't the only benefactors of major Kushner donations. Daniel Golden is the author of The Price of Admission, which uncovered how wealthy families buy their children's admission into the Ivy League, years before Aunt Becky and friends got busted for doing the same. Well, I stumbled onto the Kushner case pretty much by chance. Uh, When I was working on my book in in the 2004-05 period, I found that uh, Jared's father, Charles Kushner, had had pledged uh, $2.5 million to Harvard around the time or shortly before uh, Jared applied. And I found by talking to people at his high school that he wasn't considered a top student there. You know, he was considered uh, 
you know, a bright kid who didn't apply himself all that much and wasn't in all the, the top classes and so on. And, and there was quite a bit of uh, skepticism when he was admitted to Harvard and, and, you know, some of the other students weren't or, or, or went elsewhere. But, hey, maybe Jared just worked really hard and got into Harvard. He was not one of the most exceptional students. I mean, his high school didn't attempt to provide proof. They basically said he wasn't. I mean, he was, you know, an, an average student. And um, I might also mention, in the course of it, I also talked to Neil Rudenstein, who had been president of Harvard at the time, and Charles Kushner had gone to see him around this period and indicated he was interested in donating for, uh, you know, worthy purposes like financial aid. And, of course, that's another way of getting on Harvard's uh, radar screen. And so that probably that donation and that conversation with the president, you know, got the Kushners onto Harvard's big donor committee and, uh, you know, very likely played a role in uh, Jared's getting into Harvard. Now, of course, the Kushners have always denied that this donation was intended to help Jared's admissions chances, and they've also said that he was a very good student, but, you know, my reporting showed otherwise on both those counts. Yeah. So what? Rich people have easier lives. I already know that because I have, you know, the power of sight and hearing. But it goes deeper than that. This kind of behavior has a corrosive effect on our democracy and the idea of the American dream. I have a, you know, a deep-set belief that admission should be based on merit and that the role of colleges is to identify uh, the applicants who have the most ability or potential or demonstrated achievement uh, so that they should get in on their own, uh, you know, on their own merit. And I, I believe that most Americans feel the same way. And, and when these colleges, instead of trying to find, you know, diamonds in the rough and elevate, uh, you know, deserving uh, candidates, if instead they basically sell their admission slots to the highest bidder, that creates cynicism. It undermines the, the American dream of upward mobility. And I think it, you know, ultimately hurts our democracy. Back to that American dream. The dream Jared's grandfather, a refugee who narrowly escaped the worst horrors of the 20th century, achieved. Jared gets started building his own empire, but with way more than the $2 his grandfather had. I mean, there are people who say that Jared's uh, parents like bought real estate for him in some part of Boston when he went to Harvard so they could essentially like uh, have something for him to do up there, but mm -hmm. also so they could house some people who could look after him really? and like keep tabs on him. Lizzie Whittacombe, a former classmate, wrote in The New Yorker that, quote, on a campus full of t-shirts and cargo shorts, he wore dress shirts and jeans from the then trendy brand Seven for All Mankind. And he drove a Range Rover around campus. She quotes another classmate. He didn't do it with a sense of humor. He did it like, I'm fucking rich. He was a considered to be pretty, pretty, you know, moderately religious. He comes from an Orthodox family, but he's moderately religious at Harvard. Um, well liked. He is cute. People thought he was handsome. Um, you know, friends with pretty middle of the road rich guys. Um, not considered huge dicks, right? But not considered to be uh, also like super studious and smart. His college admission story is telling. It doesn't really say so much about his intellectual ability, but it may say something about his ability to um, 
empathize with the with people who haven't been as fortunate in life i mean uh you know when you're in a situation where everything came easy and and you got into college because your father made a big donation and uh uh you know you haven't either haven't had to struggle or have been bailed out very quickly whenever you did struggle it might make somebody uh less able to sort of feel for the struggles of ordinary people and so i would worry maybe less about the intelligence aspect and more about the empathy for the underdog aspect before Jared went to grad school, Charles rented out a few floors of the Puck Building, an iconic building in Soho, to New York University. Jared is admitted a few months later. Charles even went so far as to make political donations in Jared's name, donating half a million dollars as Jared while he was still a student. That is illegal. You can't make political donations in someone else's name. One day in 2004, Jared is between classes at NYU and getting off the subway when his younger brother, who is interning with their father, texts Jared that Charles hadn't shown up for work that day. Gabriel Sherman at New York Magazine wrote about the phone call Jared made to his father, asking if he's okay. Well, not really, Charles told Jared. They're going to arrest me today. Jared asks, for what? Is it because of the tape? I thought your lawyers knew about that. I thought it's not illegal. The tape? What's the tape? Jared Kushner has always stood by his father. Just as now, he always stands by his father-in-law. You will not see a, a bit of daylight between the two of them. So the story of Charles Kushner is that his brother sued him because his brother was a partner in certain businesses with him and became concerned about the way Charlie Kushner was spending company money. So he was spending company money on things like alcohol and sports tickets and landscaping and most notably political contributions. And you're not allowed to do these and take a tax deduction because that's basically stealing from the government. It's tax evasion. So Charlie Kushner's brother sues and the U.S. attorney Chris Christie starts to investigate and Charlie Kushner does what most wealthy people do, which is he hires a, a group of white-collar lawyers. And there's a whole industry that a lot of people probably don't realize is going on where these white-collar lawyers have connections to the prosecutors and they go in and they basically say, you don't really want to prosecute this guy. And they try to dissuade them from taking any action before an indictment is filed. So they try that in this case and it, and it doesn't work. Chris Christie keeps investigating. So Charlie Kushner decides to take matters into his own hand. So he enlists the help of a police captain to hire a sex worker to entrap his own sister's husband, takes a video of her, and just kind of hangs on to it for a while. Then it becomes clear that Chris Christie is moving forward with his investigation. He intends to go through with it. And Charlie Kushner sends the videotape to his sister, on the eve of his nephew's engagement party. His nephew is the same age as Jared and has really grown up side by side with Jared. And yet that happens. The tape finds its way to Chris Christie's office and Charlie Kushner is indicted for witness tampering. Charles hired a sex worker to sleep with his brother-in-law and had the encounter videotaped. Then he sends that tape to his sister hours before her son's engagement party. Charles is indicted for witness tampering. He's found guilty of tax fraud and campaign finance violations. 
and sentenced to two years in federal prison. Jared's father likes to think of himself, he said, he's the Jewish Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who say he's much more like the Godfather. Jared, still in school, visits his father in prison regularly. He refuses to admit Charles did anything wrong. I think he's in denial about what people say his dad's character is. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, his dad has been described as, like, when he gets mad about something in business, he's like an animal frothing at the mouth. Mm -hmm. Like, he knows this, but he's also devoted his entire life to trying to, like, make his dad be okay for human consumption again. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know, when he, I mean, there's a lot of complicated reporting on him coming to New York because there's some people who believe that it was all Charlie's plan, who's his dad. His dad said, you're going to come to New York and you're going to fix the family name and you're going to finally, like, get vengeance for this horrible thing that happened to me, which is that I had to go to prison. So there's a lot of people who think that Charlie has really been behind Jared's rise completely, but he will never admit that. An imprisoned dad meant Jared had to take over the family business and riches. He bought a lot of stuff, like a bunch of distressed apartment buildings in Baltimore. He bragged to Multifamily Executive, a magazine for landlords, quote, it was a lot of construction and a lot of evictions. But the communities now look great, and the outcome has been phenomenal. He shared a bit of his purchasing strategy with The Real Deal in 2008 a strategy of demanding things because the market was so bad. You look at an apartment, I don't know if any of these developments have like an espresso maker in the kitchen, uh, but I don't drink espresso, I don't drink coffee, and, and uh, you, know, you know, I don't want to pay an extra hundred bucks a foot because there's an espresso maker built in. I think there, there's nothing too obnoxious that, that you can ask for right now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just serious. But I want to look into two big specific purchases he made. First, something that frustrates me a little because it's going to sound like I made it up and was lazy about it. A massive office tower in midtown Manhattan and some of the most expensive real estate in the world. 666 Fifth Avenue. He ends up buying 666 Fifth from another real estate scion, um, Rob Spire, who is also, you know, the son of a very big real estate company in New York. And you know, Rob, smartly, is offloading this massive office tower, like, right, you know, near, like, Tiffany's and Chanel and the plaza and all these, like, the the center of New York City, Midtown, because there's a financial crisis coming Mm -hmm. that's going to be based on real estate crashing. But Jared doesn't seem to be watching any of the signals about the real estate crashing. So he buys it. At that time, it was the highest price for an office building in, I believe, the world's yeah. purchase price. Yep. That's $1.8 billion. So when the Kushner family bought the building, they wanted to make a splash. They wanted a big building that would say to Manhattan, we've arrived, we're important people. The Kushners came up in New Jersey real estate, and so Jared wanted to be among the real estate big boys and girls in Manhattan. Jared gazed over the Hudson River to Manhattan in much the same way a young Donald Trump who also inherited a real estate empire, looked over the East River. And sorry to mix metaphors, but the desire to make a splash gets them in hot water. But he buys it with a ton of debt. And 
you know, lo and behold, the entire economy starts crashing in, you know, 2008 and 2009. And so it becomes basically this albatross. Is how is he going to get out from under the debt of 666-5? Becomes Jared's quest in life. Jared also got into another stable business, print media. So he comes to New York and he buys The Observer, which is you know, a way to make a splash Mm -hmm. in New York. At the time, The Observer was like the best alternative newspaper in the world, right? It was like an alternative newspaper only for the 1%. So it was like all in jokes about all the rich people in New York and very, very funny, like knowing, you know, snarky copy, like a la Gawker, essentially, but like a little less mean. And so that's a way to get everybody to sit up and notice if you buy a newspaper, right? Here's Kushner on the purchase, speaking to Sundance in 2008. I came to own The Observer when uh, I found out I was I was still a student in school and I was doing you know a lot of different entrepreneurial activities and I heard that it was being sold and so I called the current owner who uh, who eventually you know after a lot of perseverance uh, was you know agreed to sell me the paper. I was very drawn to the brand. I mean, the New York Observer in New York is is a very revered name. Uh, obviously, history plays a lot into what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, the New York Observer, in some ways, is a sacred trust to to a very uh, important segment of, of the population. And so there's a great responsibility to them, not only to keep the status quo, but to make it better, to make it more engaging, and to hopefully expand it to more people. I worked at the New York Observer, but I left a few years before Jared came in. And... You know, it was the salmon-colored weekly that was read by sort of the elite of real estate and advertising and politics and, above all, media. And it's pretty clear from the time that Jared Kushner buys it that he believes he can use it as a tool to further his business interests, which is so interesting when you think about the sort of echoes of the way that the White House is behaving with the media now. But he immediately starts to ask people to assign hit jobs, including one on Chris Christie. Now, Jared Kushner denies that he did that, but the word hit job was so bandied about the observer that many people who worked there described being told, okay, you've got to do a hit job on somebody. And one of the former editors, Kyle Pope, describes a scene where he goes and he says, you can't say hit job. It's a textbook definition of malice. But it is very clear that sort of Jared Kushner has imported this kind of New Jersey political operative sensibility into this Manhattan newspaper. And then the love story. Kushner meets a girl. She's a former model. She appeared on reality television. And get this, she's also an heir to a massive real estate empire. Here's her father telling a slightly different version of the story I just told you. And Jared is a great young man, went to Harvard, very smart, great, doing a fantastic job in business. He's in the real estate business, done an amazing job uh, in his own right, just incredible. Just incredible. But success is also important to Ivanka. The measure of success for me is not necessarily financial with the people I choose to date. It's more that they have... I think some degree of success in their chosen field is important. Otherwise, I think it would be very easy to get insecure around my family and around my father. Right. So it doesn't really matter what field they're in, but I just need a guy who's confident, secure. Not unlike Jeff. (laughs) I was watching him out here. I don't know. What are you saying? Your your glasses just all (laughs) fogged up. (laughs) That's Ivanka on Conan a few months before she'd meet Jared. 
The Jeff, who she jokingly invited to come home and meet Daddy, is Jeff Goldblum. That didn't work out, but Ivanka and Jared started dating. Vanessa Gregoriadis had this to say about why Ivanka and Jared may have fallen for each other. Somebody said that he had interviewed Ivanka a million years ago and said, what do you like about Jared? And she said, I just love the way like we get into bed and like the two of us just like email. Like we're just like just emailing, emailing away. Like and you just like can imagine like this really hot, you know, bedroom life that's happening with the two of them emailing everybody in bed at night. You know, she, I mean, there's a lot of people who think, like, he learned everything he knows about, like, business and the media from her. Um, She told him who to be friends with. She told him how to talk to reporters. She made him understand how to be, like, more aggressive, you know, around business. And, you know, she marries him because he has money, right? Because he's a billionaire for sure. And her father is, like, a fake billionaire, right? In addition, we don't even know what she ever really got from her father because, you know, that rumors is that there was a very small trust fund but there was not like a lot of other money and he didn't like cutting his kids in he didn't want to give Ivanka Don Jr. or Eric parts of all the business he was doing even though they worked for him right he'd be like give them like a half percent or something Ivanka converts to Judaism for Jared's religious family they get married the wedding invitations include flyers for a Trump golf course As a married couple, their business practices continued in fine form. New York Magazine reports Jared Kushner tried to get Observer editors to smear a local Jersey paper that had reported on his father's crimes, allegedly leading to an editor's resignation. As the son-in-law of the already Obama birth conspiracy spouting Trump, he starts to turn the once sardonic left Observer to the right, with headlines like, excuse me, uh, higher taxes won't work, and... Dear Occupy Wall Street, it's time to go home. The paper, which used to mock New York elite, stopped mocking its most mockable, Donald J. Trump. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't think anybody took him seriously. Mm. Like, everybody thought Donald Trump was a joke. Like, in, you know, the New York magazine world in the 90s, nobody would even write about Donald Trump. Like, there was, like, a dictum in newsrooms because he was, like, too much of a loser and went out all the time. And it was like, oh, my God, Donald Trump is standing right over there, like, by, you know, the cocktail, by the hors d'oeuvres again, like, eating another pig in a blanket. Like, why would you ever write about him? And so... The problem is, is that once he was on The Apprentice, that was all like kind of spit shined and cleaned up and all the like grossness was washed away. And he was like rebirthed as this, you know, uber titan of industry Mm. from New York City and like this amazing real estate guy, even though he had, you know, lost all his dad's money and was like associated with all these kind of like, you know, look, real estate in New York City is a shady thing like he 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 was among those people that are also shady but it's still like a real gangster's paradise like his father-in-law kushner is also a real estate gangster as a new york city landlord kushner bought a building that had some rent stabilized tenants and they allege he immediately started harassing them and doing unnecessary and damaging construction to push them out Kushner amasses a net worth of $324 million. And of course, the New York Times reports, pays little to no federal income tax. But 666 Fifth Avenue, the building Kushner bought to look cool in New York, is still hemorrhaging money. In 2011, they have to refinance the building and they take on even more risk. But even that doesn't do it. And 
after that period, up to and including the presidential campaign, this building has a billion dollars of debt. And the Kushner family is traveling the world to find ways to refinance this building. And that's where Jared Kushner's business is when Trump runs for president and ultimately wins. Kushner is vital in the campaign and reaps the benefits, especially with regards to his unbelievably myopic and disastrous 666 Fifth Avenue purchase. So he's work, He's talking to international businessmen, international bankers at the time when his father-in-law is going to be in a role that can affect them. Right, exactly. I mean, he's talking to people all across the world to try to, uh, to finance this building. And I think that what you see in Jared Kushner's behavior as a private businessman mirrors what his father-in-law has done. So we know that when Donald Trump became president, he said he wasn't going to separate himself from his family business. He said, I'm going to turn over the day-to-day operations to my sons, but I am not going to cut myself off from it uh, in an ownership way. And that has become the template in the Trump administration, including with Jared Kushner, who kept a lot of his business and also did divest some parts of it, but basically to close family members like his brother and his sister and his mother. So there is no meaningful separation between the Trump family and its business or the Kushner family and its business in the White House. And that has led to all kinds of situations where it's the question is, in whose interest are the families acting, in their own personal interests or in the government's interests? Sometimes during the campaign, Trump would have Kushner secretly listen in on phone calls without telling the other person Kushner was there, a la the plastics in the classic 2004 film, Mean Girls. Okay, what is it? Regina says everyone hates you because you're such a slut. She said that? You didn't hear it from me. A little harsh, Gretch. Whatever, she has a right to know. I can't go out. Uh, uh, I'm sick. Boo, you whore. (gasps) Meanwhile, one-time Trump opponent Chris Christie is trying to wriggle his way into the administration. He worked on the campaign and transition and wanted a role in the White House. But remember, Christie was the federal attorney who took down Jared's dad. Christie hoped that was water under the bridge. Trump, who had his own relationship with Chris Christie, makes Chris Christie his transition chief. And there's a meeting at Trump Tower where Chris Christie goes in to have the appointment formalized. And Jared Kushner comes in and is like, why is he going to get this job, essentially? And he says, it's not fair. He went after my father he being Chris Christie, and this was really a matter to be settled by the family or by rabbis, not by prosecutors. Trump overrules Jared Kushner at that point. But as soon as Trump is elected almost, Jared Kushner sees to it that Christie is fired from the transition team. As Christie describes it, the kid took an ax to his head. This is a sort of quintessential revenge story where Jared Kushner is making sure that his power is respected and that anyone who he feels has crossed it or hurt his family in the past is not going to be successful. There's that family loyalty and vengeance we talked about and a great example of how Kushner uses power. He is super close to the president. He and Ivanka are both special advisors. 
like everybody else, they thought he would run and he would lose and it would just be a boost to everybody ultimately because it made them all very famous and he wouldn't really do any damage because it would be over. And when he won, they were shocked and yeah, my reporting is is that Jared was they they tell it like the two of us made the decision together. But my reporting is that he was really the one who lit the fire under her and she made the decision thinking like if Jared thinks it's a good idea, I should do it. I think the most important thing for people to really understand about Jared Kushner is he is one of the most powerful people in the country that they probably don't know much about. I mean, I think one of the problems for us in thinking about the administration is we still tend to think about the presidency in traditional terms. Mm-hmm. His chief of staff, cabinet, this is not the way Trump does things. He has his family. He has his friends that he calls on the phone. He has people like Sean Hannity who advise him. He has obviously incredibly influential off-the-books advisors like Rudy Giuliani. So Jared Kushner is high in the pantheon of people running the government and being influential in making government decisions. Well, I mean, I think we what we know about what Jared and Ivanka are doing in the White House is, is very slender volume. Like, we don't know who they're meeting with, who they're talking to. Um, we can assume that they have every head of industry on speed dial and they have every um, head of state on speed dial. And they are taking all sorts of meetings to set up, um, you know, various companies that they might work on um, after – 2020 or 2024 or whatever they think is actually realistic at this point. Um, But we don't know that much. You know, we know kind of the tip of the iceberg. One example, finally getting some of that money back on 666 Fifth Avenue. Jared tries to get away with selling to a Chinese company tied to the Chinese government while also speaking with China in his official capacity at the White House. But American legislators put the kibosh on it. Then he tries to shake down the Qataris. Eventually, Kushner offloads the building to another real estate firm at a major loss. An ability to manipulate foreign relations to rescue a $2 billion building? That's pretty far from the $2 Jared's refugee grandfather started with. The children of Ray and Joe Kushner wrote a book for Ray Kushner's 75th birthday that described their journey. And given that his grandparents had this rule-breaking past, particularly around immigration rules. Jared Kushner's, one of the current items in his portfolio is building the wall on the southern border and, according to reports, wanting to put in a wall cam to monitor its construction in real time. And when you think about the arc of his grandparents' escape, immigration, and the success that that enabled— and you compare it to Jared's role now in keeping people out, it is a particular resonance of history that that has occurred. The American dream. It's what got Jared Kushner into the White House. That someone could come to the United States as a refugee and just a few decades later have his grandson helping with policy to keep new refugees out? That is America. Being rich really helps you get more rich. And that's what Jared and Ivanka are busy doing in the White House. We don't know what they're planning to do after the White House and how much they could potentially be on the take right now. Like, we don't know if they've done stock swaps or if there's ways in which they've taken money off the table for deals um, that might involve the country or might involve just things that they're doing later. We just have no idea. Um, It's like a black box. 
I think the really important thing to understand is the way this family story is situated in American history at this incredibly perilous time for our democracy, where money is having such a great effect on politics. And for somebody who's younger, it may not be clear that this is something that is not a perennial situation. So after Watergate, there were structures put into place. And and I lived through all of this as someone covering political corruption. These structures were designed to limit the influence of money in politics. But as the years went by, there was a concerted effort by the very wealthy to dismantle these restrictions and money has flooded in. So it's not a perennial situation. It's a particular product of a particular set of decisions that have arrived in our country. And the antidote to that is more democracy. So it's very important to understand this is not just the way politics is. It's not just that politics is bad or dirty or corrupted by money, even though it always is to some extent. But the sort of history of America has been this tension between moments when it seems overwhelming and, in a sense, a real civic sense of that is not something that our country wants to do. And the antidote to all the money is more democracy and more voting and more participation. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump are emblematic of how power and success actually work in America. No bullshit about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Jared Kushner is the real American dream. Born rich with little to worry about. His admission into elite universities purchased by his parents. Already a magnate right out of college. Then his wife gets him a job working at her daddy's company. Only this isn't at the old paper mill or whatever. It's running the free world. That is America. On the next episode of Who Is, we look at the other most powerful millennial in the White House, arguably the most extreme member of the Trump administration, the one whose actions have had the most impact on the lives of everyday people, Stephen Miller. A sincere thank you to our guests, Andrea Bernstein, co-host of the Trump Inc. podcast from WNYC and ProPublica, and author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. Daniel Golden, senior editor at ProPublica and author of The Price of Admission, How America's Ruling Class Buys Its Way into Elite Colleges, and Who Gets Left Outside the Gates. And Vanessa Gregoriadis, host of Tabloid, The Making of Ivanka Trump, and author of Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, senior producer and writer. Michael McDowell is our producer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, Amanda Earle, and Marco Wall. Emily Feld and David Zwick are our producers in Los Angeles. Our executive producers are Sarah Frank, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Xaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to PJ Evans, Matt McDonough, Devin Rogerino, and Elias Acevedo for their excellent work on the original video series, Who Is?, which you can find on Facebook and YouTube. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe and mention us to your friends. We love your friends. Did you write that? (laughs) 